Hello, this is James, and welcome back to The Word is Very Near You, my podcast about God's presence in our everyday lives. Today I'm beginning a new series on Lent called Bread and Wine. Historically, Lent is a time when Christians reflect on the sufferings of Jesus. And as they do that, we also look inward, don't we? We think about ways that we perhaps contributed to his suffering, ways that we might amend our lives and do better. It's a penitential season, a time when we think about maybe giving up a certain habit or at least reducing its frequency, or perhaps adding a new habit like prayer or scripture reading or increasing its frequency. It has more of a somber, reflective mood to it, doesn't it? I can't say that I always enjoy Lent, but I can say that after Lent is over and I look back on the time of quiet and reflection and contemplation that I benefit from the practices of Lent and dwelling on the sufferings of Jesus and areas where I might do better in my life. So throughout the remainder of Lent, I'll be focusing on passages that invite us into this journey of self-reflection and also passages that help us to consider the sufferings of Jesus and what he went through on our behalf. Today's topic is one that might seem a little strange to you at first. I want you to think with me for a moment about the show American Idol. And before I begin, this is not a rant against American Idol. I've enjoyed watching it some over the years, and by the ratings, I would guess that a lot of you do also. It's kind of fun to watch, right? Think about the title, though, with me, American Idol. The winner becomes rich, famous, adored by millions of fans. And that certainly happened to people like Kelly Clarkson and Clay Aiken and Carrie Underwood, Jennifer Hudson. Their singing careers are launched, and they become adored, you might even say worshipped, by millions and millions of fans. Idols are a familiar image in the Bible also. We see them throughout the Old Testament, but also in the New as well. Perhaps the most famous idol of all was the golden calf, right? Around the time of the Ten Commandments, when Moses was so long coming down the mountain, the people kind of gave up on him and decided to make their own god out of gold. The people take off their jewelry and melt those items down into the shape of a calf and begin to worship it, which sounds utterly foreign and ridiculous to us. But significantly, warnings against idolatry comprise two of the top ten commandments, which begin like this. I'm reading from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. It's tempting for us today to read those words and think, my, how backwards and ridiculous and superstitious that was. Of course, idols aren't real. But think about the context of that day and how real of a pull idolatry was. All the nations around Israel had gods that they worshipped 
and usually they worshipped these gods in the form of idols. They carved images out of stone or wood or metal, and the god was thought to inhabit that image. So it's not just the idol itself they were worshipping, but the god who inhabited that idol, the god who brought rain for the crops or fertility for the livestock. And we see throughout the Old Testament and the New, for that matter, that the pull of idolatry for God's people was always quite real. It was no laughing matter. And we see a vivid image of this in Jeremiah chapter 2, a chapter that is answering the basic question, what has happened to Judah? Judah, the southern kingdom, used to be this independent, successful nation, very prosperous, but now they have been conquered not yet militarily, but they have been conquered in the sense that they are now having to pay heavy tribute and taxes to Assyria and having to basically do whatever they say. Judah is no longer free, and people are rightfully asking, why would God let this happen? And Jeremiah 2 is basically the answer to that question. And fairly quickly, you get a sense of what's gone wrong. Starting in verse 2, This is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. Skipping down to verse 5, What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord, who brought us up out of Egypt, and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines? Skipping down to verse 8, The priest did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. And then skipping down to verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Let me read that last verse again, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the answer to the question of why has God allowed this calamity to befall our nation is rather clear in these verses, isn't it? Judah has rejected God. They have been unfaithful to him, and they have turned to other gods. And I want to focus here on verse 13, because it's just such a powerful image of what has happened. That people have forsaken God, the spring of living water. That word living would also be translated as running in the original language, running water. And in an arid climate like Palestine, That's what you wanted, was a spring of running or fresh water. Cisterns were a way of capturing rainwater. You would dig a hole in the rock, usually with some kind of filter or cover on it, to capture any rainwater or runoff. 
And it was certainly better than having no water at all, of course, but it was water that easily could become stagnant or dirty. And if the cistern that you dug happened to have a crack in it, then you had a real problem because all your water just ran out. And the spiritual metaphor here is clear, isn't it? That God is the source of life. He is the spiritual source of life on who we were meant to depend. He is fresh, running, clean water to quench and satisfy the thirst of our souls. But so often we humans reject God and try to dig our own sources of water. We decide we're going to go our own way and do our own thing. And as a result, we often end up spiritually thirsty, don't we? So I want you to think with me for a moment about how idolatry works today. Idols that we worship today don't have names like Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech, some of the names we see in the Old Testament for foreign gods, or even names like Zeus or Apollos or Artemis, some of the New Testament idols we see. No, they have names like success, ambition, pleasure, acceptance, sex, smartphones, entertainment, on and on and on we could go and name the idols today, right? Idols today are largely invisible. Most of us don't have a temptation to bow down to chunks of wood and stone and metal, but we do give our time and our attention and our energy to things that try to substitute for God, or at least we try to substitute them for God. Tim Keller is a pastor who has done some amazing work on this idea of idols. And one of his quotes about idols has really stuck with me. He says, An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. So by that definition, idols are everywhere, aren't they? And they're not too difficult to spot with a little spade work in our own lives and certainly the lives of others too but of course the focus of Lent is we need to be focused on the idols in our own lives and how we can do better in our own hearts for my own life I think about the idol of acceptance and that's been a tough one for me for ever since I can remember I have this great need for people to like me to accept me And it seems like I would do just about anything to gain acceptance from others and to avoid their rejection. And that's still a struggle for me, Uh, people-pleasing, right? And I think that's one that a lot of us struggle with. Quite frankly, another idol for me for at least the last several years has been my smartphone. Truth be told, it's been a struggle. You know, I think about how often I look at my phone and I use it to be distracted, when I feel like being distracted or to be entertained, when I'm bored. And it's just so easy to turn to my phone when I'm feeling those things. And the thing about it is I can always make the excuse, well, I need my phone for work. And so one thing I'm working on this Lent, with God's help, of course, is putting down my phone more. And just at certain times of the day, just not using certain apps that distract me and keep me from doing what I should be doing. And it's, it's a struggle, right? It's hard to break my smartphone addiction. But it's, it's an area where I feel like God has been nudging me towards 
using my phone less. And if you think about the examples I just gave, acceptance and my smartphone, the thing about those idols is there's nothing wrong with them in their place. There's nothing wrong with wanting acceptance. It's a great human need all of us have. The problem is, is when that need becomes so intense and profound that it clouds out my understanding of God's acceptance and that I already am accepted by him and that human approval and acceptance is really secondary. And the same with my phone. You know, the phone is a great tool. It's helpful to communicate with others and stay connected and do my work and at times be entertained and distracted and nothing wrong with those things in their place. The problem is when idols begin to take an outsized role in our lives and that's when the real problems begin because we start to attempt, maybe not even consciously, but to replace God with these dumb idols. And we see this pattern with so many of the idols on parade in our culture, whether it's money and consumerism, whether it's success or ambition, whether it's body image, whether it's our reputation or our perceived identity, whether it's pleasure or comfort or sex. All of these things have their rightful place in our lives and keeping them in their place is how we stay healthy and grounded. It's when we begin to let them occupy too large of a space in our lives that the trouble begins. It's like we're digging our own cisterns, trying to find meaning in life, and rejecting the source of living water, God himself. This passage from Jeremiah shows us that when we worship idols, our lives become dry and empty and lose meaning. Idols have a way of activating our false self, right? What the New Testament refers to as the flesh or the sinful nature. It's this idea that there's this false self, this old me that wants to worship something besides God and so is drawn to the power of these idols to provide comfort and meaning and security. But really, my true new child of God self doesn't want to worship idols. I want to worship the true and living God, the source of living water. That's who I really am. But idols have a way of pulling that false self away and tempting us to be something less than the best versions of ourselves by following these idols. And I'll wrap up by saying that, sadly, I have seen very often Christians use church as an idol. It sounds crazy, right? But sometimes church and church activity and the style of music and being very busy about doing church work or being very active and doing certain things in the church can lead to a sense, a very subtle sense of replacing, worshiping the living God with church work and church activity. And it's one of the reasons why even church-going people can still do very horrible things sometimes because they're worshiping an idol of the church and not the living God. So wherever your struggles are this Lent, I invite you with me to come along this journey of ruthlessly looking at the idols of your heart, those invisible pulls that tend to lead us away from the living God, and to find opportunities to begin saying no to some of those temptations and turning more and more to the living God who offers us fresh, running 
living water. We no longer have to try to dig our own cisterns anymore. Or to use a different metaphor, following idols is like living on battery power. Those batteries eventually run out and fade, but we're meant to be plugged in to the current of God and his unfailing love. This has been The Word is Very Near You. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another devotion.